I'm Seth. And I'm Jonathan. And welcome to No Experts Allowed. You know what we love? The Bible. You know what we don't love? When people use the Bible to scare or hurt others instead of allowing it to transform them and their communities. So we're trying something different. Two Bible nerds hosting a podcast that isn't about technical details, but is about two simple questions. What's the story and what's the point? One of us will prepare for the conversation. Let's call them the non-expert. The other will respond to the story as they hear it. We'll call them, and you, the storyteller. So we can show you that you don't need to be an expert to hear the Bible speak to our world. Join us. Let's tell a good story today. Hey, Seth. How's it going? I'm great. How are you, Jonathan? I'm doing okay. I think I've been using my voice a little too much lately, so if I sound a little raspy or if I'm speaking quieter than normal, that's why. But other than that, I'm pretty good. You know, the world's burning around us, but as good as you can be in that kind of situation, I think I'm okay. Yeah, your voice is a little raspy. It's not like, who's um who's the college football coach? Who has that, like, super raspy voice? Oh, Ed Orgeron from LSU. Yeah, it's not like that. <laughs> he sounds like Donald Duck is doing a ventriloquy act <laughs> through Ed Orgeron. His voice is insane. It is. It's crazy. What a dude. I wonder how Ed Orgeron, though, would respond to a particular question that I have for you. Okay. What would you do in this particular situation? Would you want to only be able to top your salad with toenail clippings or have to use earwax instead of peanut butter? Uh, When I heard the first option, I was like, okay, definitely going with option number two. And And then I got option number two and I was like, I don't know anymore. This is why you read all the answers before you answer the questions, Seth. Okay, I still think I'm going to go option number two. The earwax is peanut butter. Really? Yeah, because at least like I could more likely convince myself that it's similar to peanut butter. But there's no way I'm convincing myself that my toenail clippings are like croutons. (laughs) 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 We'll see... I I wrote this question and also figured out a loophole as I wrote it. Cuz for me not eat I'm, either of them. I'm I'm not eat, I'm not eating something and I'd rather much rather not eat salad than not eat peanut butter. And so I would just go with salad. Toenail clippings disgusting. But I feel like some things like sunflower seeds croutons are basically the toenail clippings of the salad bar anyway no who am i kidding those are the things for which the salad bar exists that's what i'm thinking you you tolerate the bed of rabbit food so you can eat crunchy dry bread craisins and and like and And a lot of dressing ranch dress ranch (laughs) dressing otherwise known as sugar mayonnaise okay well I had to ask a question about eating weird stuff because, and it will be very evident, there's a clear connection to our scripture today. So why don't you go ahead and read 
this passage from John. This is John 6, verses 51 through 58. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats from this bread, they will live forever. And the bread which I shall give is my flesh, given for the life of the world. This caused a squabble among the Judeans. How can this fellow give us his flesh to eat? They asked. I'm telling you the solemn truth, Jesus replied. If you don't eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Anyone who feasts upon my flesh and drinks my blood has the life of God's coming age, and I will raise them up on the last day. My flesh is true food, you see, and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I remain in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. It isn't like the bread which the ancestors ate and died. The one who eats this bread will share the life of God's new age. I'm kind of hungry now. Oh, but tell us, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but tell us why you picked this translation. Yes, so this is from the Kingdom New Testament, which is the New Testament translation of the scholar N.T. Wright. He is a prolific author. I, I say that he exists kind of on the far left margins of evangelical scholarship. Like there are some, still some things where he is surprisingly traditional and some other things where he's surprisingly progressive. But I know for me, he kind of opened up a world of interpretation that I never knew existed before when I first encountered his works. And so I crack open his translation of the New Testament every once in a while. I really just like his language choice sometimes. I mean, and and some of that will actually come into play, I think, some important things about this story. But I love the fact that he said this caused a squabble among yeah, Judeans. That's one that's one that stood out to me. Some other really I think powerful language choices here. But this is a pretty strange passage. And I can imagine a whole lot of things yeah. might have stood out to you. But what were the things that caught your attention the most? You're right. This is a crazy passage. I love how Jesus says if anyone eats this bread, they'll live forever. And this bread is my flesh. It's given for the world. Then they're confused. There's a squabble. But then he just doubles down. Like he's just mm-hmm. like, he's like, I'm telling you the truth. And then he just says it again. He's like, here we go. This is my body. This is my blood. It's not like the other bread. This is different somehow. But I love yeah. the way he doubles down. Like they're confused. And that, that leads him to like to a further explanation of what's of what his this bread and body is. I know I've been in that situation where I say something and people are confused and so I just say the same exact thing again <laughs> thinking that oh you must just not have heard me. But it feels like almost everything in this passage that we read is in John chapter 6 at least twice. Either you read it twice or it's somewhere before or after this passage in what's a really long chapter. 
this is one of those passages that I think, first off, that John is famous for. These kind of long, theological, metaphorical reflections. But also it's one of those passages that I think causes a lot of hesitancy. It causes us to be kind of caught up in mystery. Mm-hmm. It doesn't leave us knowing exactly what to do. There are times in the Bible, times when Jesus is speaking, where the message is clear. It might be hard to hear, but at least we know what Jesus is saying. Here, I think the waters are a little murkier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Even as a Lutheran, I read this and I'm like, okay, this is this is pretty crazy. Like, I'm literally going to eat this dude's flesh and blood, right? Not only that, but what the bread does is so magical and amazing. But it also scares me, like, what about the people who don't eat the flesh of the Son of Mm. Man and drink his blood? Sure. Yeah. Well, that, I think, relates to an important point here. We didn't read this, but in the context of John 6, this passage is kind of a crucial moment. So if you go back to your episode from just a few weeks ago, where we're talking about the feeding of the 5,000, that was earlier, it was the very beginning of John chapter 6. And we were kind of at a point in the chapter where the energy and excitement around Jesus is building. The crowd starts to follow him. Everyone just starts to think, man, this guy's got it all together. Then he says this stuff. And by the end of chapter 6, it's really just back to him and the 12 disciples. Like this is arc in, in, in John 6. And I think it's so interesting too. We're getting a glimpse thematically over why the lectionary works so well over these past few weeks. Mm-hmm. We're not only connected chronologically to a passage earlier in this chapter, but we're also connected to a passage we encountered a few weeks ago too, thinking about the Israelites receiving manna from heaven. And Jesus saying, they ate that and they died. This this bread, my flesh, is even better than that. So you have Jesus alluding to one of the most mysterious things to ever happen in the Bible and say, you thought that was mysterious? Check this out. <laughs> but even, <laughs> our, our, I think our reactions are appropriate because they are also reflected in the scripture with people who say, I thought this guy was for me, but not anymore. Yeah, they're just turned off by cannibalism. Yeah, understandably, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're like, I don't want to be part of the Donner Party. That hasn't happened yet, but I don't want to be a part of it. <laughs> Should we be concerned that the disciples do want to be a part of it? Never mind. <laughs> Maybe we should move on. Was there anything else that stood out to you as you read this? You know, mostly... Um, I was as confused as the disciples are. But I also like its connection, the way like you can see how John is pulling from from stories that his audience would know, that his Jewish audience might know, the stories that the disciples would know. Right? And, it, and just like you said, it, this, is, this is like manna from heaven, but even better. Not just in its taste, but like in its its actuality like in the in its effect it should go without saying but i'm gonna say it anyway (laughs) that jesus is being metaphorical here 
that Jesus is not being literal. <laughs> and I don't say that to denigrate our Catholic siblings who believe certain things about the Eucharist and Holy Communion. But what I'm saying is that Jesus was not like offering his arms and legs for people to take a bite out of while he was saying this. Clearly, this this is doing exactly what you're talking about, alluding to some larger meaning in the life of Israel to have Jesus be identified in a certain way. And that actually connects with one of the things that, kind of the rabbit hole that I went down studying and preparing in this passage. It was a way, honestly, that the English language fails us in seeing how this passage took shape originally. So I know we don't like to do it often, but I think it's particularly important here because it actually gives us an avenue through this very strange passage. The overwhelming use of the word eat, or I guess I should say the root of that word that we translate eat in the New Testament, is the word estheo. It is by far the most common word that becomes translated as eat. It's very common throughout all the Gospels and even other places in the New Testament. And this is not the word for eat that is used exclusively in this passage. It does show up a couple of times. The main word, though, is a different word, the word trogo, which I think sounds cool. Trogo. It also is translated eat. That's the only way it's translated. It shows up five times in this passage and only shows up one other time in the entire New Testament hmm. in a passing reference in Matthew. So there is something unique to this particular reflection about the word. And it shows up for the first time when we heard N.T. Wright translate it as anyone who feasts upon my flesh and drinks my blood mm -hmm. has the life of God's coming age. Now, he doesn't, he's not consistent with that translation. He goes back and forth between that and eat for the same word. But another commentator, Alan Dwight Callahan, in True to Our Native Land, which is a great New Testament commentary, he talks about the comparison between estheo as be, of being eating with like kind of agency, like self-sustaining, hmm. where trogo is more about being fed. Hmm. As a, this, this example is beyond the New Testament, but it, he cites the example of a farmer feeding an animal. Hmm. Okay. So yes, yes, the... The animal is eating, but they are doing so because of the direct provision of the farmer. So, I don't have a terribly profound <laughs> resolution to that. I don't think I have a clear-cut way of understanding this scripture. And I like approaching things like this, continually expecting to be, I'd say, overwhelmed by mystery. But does that distinction at all shed any light for you on what may be going on in this passage? Yeah, doesn't it somehow flip who the focus is? 
at least it does it does for me like in, instead of the focus being on the the eaters like suddenly the focus is now on the the feeder what strikes me is how that can still be scary and still like still mm-hmm. off-putting especially like as as someone who likes their basic autonomy, who kind of like wants yeah. to do what they want and eat when they want and eat what they want. It's a change to rely on someone else's feeding schedule and what they give you to eat. And that can be scary too. Like that's a different act of trust. Yeah, I appreciate your framework there. It's not about I've got two plates in front of me and I've got to choose one or I have to choose Jesus. <laughs> but it's more so about the eater's mentality. Am I willing to be fed what Jesus has to give me? Or am I insisting on seeking out my own food? And that actually gets right to a question that I wanted to ask about a point of this text. And I think your, your reflection already has started to get right into this topic. But you know, we hear Jesus making this offer to this crowd, and overwhelmingly they leave. And I wonder, why is it so much harder to think about being fed by Jesus, whatever that means, rather than just being part of his crowd? Hmm. There's a distinction here. There's a level of willingness that a lot of people have to associate themselves with Jesus. But at this point where they're considering being fed by Jesus, that's the that's the breaking point. So you talked a little bit already about how it's about autonomy. There's also some reflections in around and around this passage that Jesus may have been like there's there's some parallel images here to mil other military leaders in israel's history that had risen up in galilee where this story takes place and how five thousand men is a comparative number to a a military unit Hmm. and jesus instead of riling them up and citing rebellion or revolution says feast on me and, ca- and essentially casts them all away. So why why do you think it's so much harder to think about being fed by Jesus rather than just affiliating with him because of the cool stuff he does? <laughs> yeah, I think I alluded to this earlier, but this idea, if we don't lose who we are, suddenly it's no longer us who's really in charge anymore. And I think that can be particularly scary. That's scary for me, too. Like, sometimes I don't like to admit it, but I like to be in charge. I like to have, like, some control. And I think we lose that about ourselves when we follow Jesus. But in the crowd, just, like, being loosely associated with Jesus, you can, you can like, maintain that. At least these people have main, maintained enough of their, their autonomy to just leave. Just be like, ah. Yeah. I'm out of this. Like, this is too crazy for me. I'm walking home. Yeah. And that's certainly been part of my reflection and understanding too. And one of the things that I've been challenged by is, you know, the idea of autonomy often connects to us on a very individual level, an individual level that 
more than likely was not part of the conversation in first century Palestine. And seeing some of this comes from Callahan too, but seeing some of these comparisons to a military rebellion of some kind, knowing that the format and the genre of the gospel is, was often used as propaganda to support and uphold the emperors to think about a military leader who says, you know, we're going to metaphorically, otherwise we're going to feast on the flesh and blood of our enemies or of a rebellion. We're going to feast on the flesh and blood of Rome for a leader who's garnering a following to say, no, we will have eternal life. We will have the life of God's coming age, as Wright says, if you feast on me. And there's something so profoundly mm-hmm. anti-violent in that, even though this passage is full of flesh and blood and sounds <laughs> really violent and has a lot of almost gory imagery. But when contrasted with what Jesus could be saying... There is something here about giving up the sense of the possibility of autonomy, even if it's for a people collectively. Again, sacrificing that for the sake of what God might have to feed them and to feed us. It takes me still to the end of the passage where Jesus compares what he's saying to manna. And again, this most incredible provision, this symbol of God's care he essentially says that pales in comparison to what I'm offering you now. Hmm. I could understand why people would be either offended by that or scared away by that because we know that God often operates in ways that are surprising and new and unimaginable until they happen. If you thought this was going to be some type of militaristic movement, you'd be pretty disappointed after Jesus said this part, right? Right. Like, this is clear that this this wasn't a bloody revolution. It may be drinking his blood, but that blood's not created by exploiting and killing and fighting others. Yeah. Obviously, in the history of the church, this passage, this idea, so directly connects to the idea of the Lord's Supper. That's, this is in our liturgy all the time. And there's something about this that there is clearly an identity marker here that says, if you're going to be my people, this is what is at stake. This is what I offer you, but this is what it may cost you to. It may cost mm-hmm. you these ambitions for your people to overthrow the empire because we're going to exist in a new way of life, the life of God's new or coming age. For me, I'm still I'm still wrestling with what that may mean for us here and now today to accept the offer to let God lead, to let Jesus feed us. And it's so and it's so hard to even translate the question because it's so deeply rooted <laughs> in the metaphor. Yeah. And it can very easily be led into a very, I think, surface level place. But is there Is there anything that stands out to you that feels like an appropriate response for you to this passage? I'm thinking. Not to put you on the spot or anything. No, it's fine. It's like (laughs) my response is is more of a question. Like 
would I be scared away by this metaphor too? Mm. Or would I still be there? You know, what are my fundamental reasons for following Jesus? I could ask that question every day of myself. Is it because of the cool stuff that he does? Or is it, is it this new vision that he offers in the way that it's radically opposed to to a world that's that's like bent on fighting? I just keep coming back to some language that we used in our last episode. The idea of an, a third way, another way. It, it feels like Jesus is speaking in the midst of an oppressed people who are saying we either must fight or we will be crushed. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And Jesus says there is life here and now. I know I really get caught up in those those false dichotomies, those either or situations yeah. that aren't actually either or. There are always ways through that though that resist the narratives of domination and violence that allow us, I think, to catch a glimpse of that life that Jesus offers by offering us himself. Hmm. I really think we need to pray. Unless you had something else to say, then say that and then we can well, pray. I was I was gonna ask to pray because I think what strikes me most about this passage is what you just said. That it's not just Jesus feeding us the way like a, a farmer feeds an animal, but it's actually Jesus feeding us with his very self. There's like a, there's a self-sacrificial element there that's also somehow mystically and magically and mysteriously sustaining. Yeah, we just got to pray, I think. Yeah. I don't want that to be a cop-out, but I think this is one of the passages that we need to continue to carry and and lean into that mystery a little more. So, Seth, will you pray with me? I would love to. Everlasting God, you are true food for us to eat. Forgive us for when we seek our nourishment elsewhere. Help us to be fed by Christ so that we may feed the world with his love and compassion, and so all may share the life of your new age. Mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world, I pray in the name of the living bread from heaven, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Seth, what story will we tell next week? Next week, we're back in Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. But until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Jonathan. Thanks for helping me tell it. <laughs>